What I'd like us to do this morning as we're getting started, and perhaps you'd like to close your eyes for this, that's fine, but I'd like us to do just a little bit of a meditation, and I'd like us to sort of mull over in our heads and think about the sort of sum total of sin that's in this world. And so what I want you to do, take a moment again, if you want to close your eyes, that's fine. And I want you to think about just sin in the world at large. Corruption. Politicians who are abusing power. Disobedience against God. False idolatry. Greed. Violence. Think of the war all over the world, terrorism, hatred. Think of women who've been sold into trafficking, men who've been wrongly imprisoned. Think of children who are willfully neglected and abandoned. Think of those who have so much at their disposal, refusing to be generous to others who are in need. Think of the pollution and the way in which we've taken this beautiful creation and are destroying it for our own purposes. I want you to think about the rampant sin perhaps closer to home. Here in this country, deceitful politicians, hypocrisy in the church, sports as an idol, money as an idol, the pride, the arrogance, the laziness, the selfishness, the greed that we see all over the place, alcoholism, workaholism, drug abuse, sexual immorality, defying God when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to identity, self-centeredness, anger, bitterness, hatred. And now think about just all of the sin even closer to home, in our own families, in our own lives. Maybe you left last week hearing a sermon about not being a people pleaser, and you decided you wanted to be a person who sought praise from God and not praise from humans. But if you're honest, this past week you fell back into the trap of seeking the approval of others and not worrying about God. Think about all of the bitter words, all of the impatience, the anger, responding to those who responded to us poorly with hatred and anger and wanting revenge. All of the ways we've struggled this week with lust or with coveting with not giving God what he deserves. Sin is everywhere. It's rampant. You read the newspaper. You look in your own lives. You experience 
relationships with other people, and the world is shot through with sin. Now, if you've closed your eyes, open them. And with this idea of the rampant sinfulness, I want you to take a Bible and open to the book of Romans. And I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. We'd like to review a little bit as we get to where we're going to be this morning. Romans 1, which is page 911 in the Bibles you may have picked up on the way in. Romans chapter 1. The first three chapters of the book of Romans are designed to do exactly what we've been trying to do in this little meditation exercise, which is have us come to grips with the near universality and almost infinite nature of sin in this world. Romans 1 begins with the gospel, but by the time we get to verse 18, we hear Paul saying, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul goes on to talk about pride and ingratitude that instead of being grateful to God and grateful to others, we too often choose an attitude of entitlement, of coveting. I deserve better than this. Look at the list that is included in Romans 1, verse 29, after talking about sexuality that is displeasing to God. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolence, arrogance, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Turn over to Romans chapter 2. When we looked at the first four verses... And we talked about God's kindness. We also heard the rebuke that all too often we despise the kindness of God. That we choose in our relationships with others, not kindness, but harshness and impatience and judgmentalism. In verses 5 through 16, we talked about those who seek after evil, who those who are selfish, and looked only to ourselves to solve our problems. In verses 17 through 29 of chapter 2, Paul reminds us of the universality of hypocrisy in the church and in our lives, and the rampant people pleasing instead of choosing praise from God, we seek the approval of others. Well, on top of this litany of sins, we get to Romans 3 and listen to what God says beginning in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What Paul is saying is the exercise that we've been going through this morning of thinking about all of the sin in this world and in this country and in our own lives is not a futile exercise because sin is everywhere. There is no one who seeks after God the way he ought to be sought after. There is no one who always does what's righteous. There is no one who speaks uh, everything that they're supposed to say in the right way. Now listen. God's point and Paul's point is not that there is no good in this world. They're not, he's not saying that. He's not saying that everyone is as evil as they could possibly be. He's not saying that either. He's simply making the point that we're making, which is if you take this world as a whole, if you look at your own life and the lives of the people around us, if you look in the country in which we live, sin is everywhere. What country in this world could actually make the viable claim that they are a God-honoring, godly country? What family, what people group could make that claim? What person could say that they always do the right thing? Even the best of us, even those who are believers in Jesus, do we not, as we look back over this week, have stumbled? Have we not stumbled and fallen? Have we not said things we shouldn't have said? Have we not done things we shouldn't have done? Now imagine that you're God. And imagine that you're looking at this world that you've created. We see only our own lives. We see only what we read in the news. Only things that we hear and experience. But imagine God looking down upon this creation and seeing all of the sexual immorality, all of the idolatry, all of the hatred, all of the terrorism, all of the greed, all of the angry words, all of the blaspheming that's going on as he looks around the world in each and every individual life, in each family, in each community, in each country, in the whole world, it is full of sin everywhere. How would you feel if you were God? What would you think of this creation? And the question we have before us this morning, what is God's response to the onslaught of human sin? What is God's response to the nearly infinite amount of sin in this world? God tells us what his response is in verses 3 and 4 of Romans chapter 3. These are the verses we want to focus on this morning. Verses 3 and 4, Romans 3. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. 
Paul is beginning in Romans 3 by using the example of Jewish people and talking about the sinfulness in Jewish people, but his point is not simply Jewish people. His point is humanity. When God looks out in humanity, he sees unfaithfulness. What that means is is that God created us. And because he created us and gave us life, what we owe him is praise and obedience and honor and trust. But every single one of us have been unfaithful to give to God what he deserves. Even the best of humans, even those who are walking closely with Jesus, have not given to God 100% of the glory and the honor and the obedience and the trust that he deserves until Paul says, what is God's attitude in the face of universal unfaithfulness? What is God's response to the fact that he looks out in this world, in this sanctuary, this room this morning, and all over the world today and sees 100% of people who have been unfaithful to him? What's his response? Does our unfaithfulness, Paul asks, nullify God's faithfulness? In other words, does God choose to respond to our unfaithfulness with unfaithfulness of his own? Does he choose to fight fire with fire? Does he simply decide, you've messed up this world, you've messed up your lives, you've done so many evil things, I'm simply done with you, and I'm done with humanity in general? Is that God's response to our unfaithfulness? Paul says, not at all. Now that's a bit of a weak translation. What you have there is the strongest possible denial available to Paul in the Greek language. It's the strongest denial that we have in the New Testament. Essentially what it means is, no, never, never, ever, ever, in no possible way did God ever or will God ever respond to our unfaithfulness with unfaithfulness of his own. It's not even possible. Nothing could be further from the truth. He says, let God be true and every human being a liar. Which we should actually translate, God is true and every human being is a liar. Now that's not just talking about the lies we speak with our lips. We are all liars on that front too. He's talking about the fact that all of us are liars with our lives. Our lives are supposed to say something about who God is and our lives lie. We're frauds, all of us, to some extent. But God is true. Meaning he responds to our faithlessness with faithfulness. He responds to our sin with goodness. He does not choose to fight fire with fire. He does not give us what we deserve. 
He does not reject the promises that he's made. Instead, his response to our faithlessness is to be faithful. Paul goes on to quote the Old Testament. So that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. What does it look like for God to be faithful in response to our faithlessness? Paul quotes a very famous psalm, a very important psalm, one that might sound familiar to you because we just read it aloud as a congregation. This quote in verse 4 comes from Psalm 51, which is one of the psalms that we know precisely what incident it is being written to address. It's a psalm of David. And there's a very particular reason why the Apostle Paul chooses to quote Psalm 51 when he's discussing God's response to human faithlessness. You see, David was the greatest king in Israel's history. He was made to be king at a young age. He was anointed to be king before he had done anything worthy of being anointed to be king. God simply chose him out of his mercy and grace. God raised David up, gave him a great victory over Goliath, put him in Saul's service. Saul was the king during the time in which David was anointed. But Saul was unfaithful to the Lord and tried to kill David because of jealousy. God protected David, walked him through that entire experience, made sure that nothing happened to David. When the time was right, God executed his judgment on Saul, removed him from the kingship, and placed David in his stead. During the civil war that, that, that came after that, God was faithful so that the house of David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker until David was ruling over all of Israel. At one point, David decides he wants to build God a temple. He wants to build God a house for his name. He's so grateful for all that God has done for him. He wants to honor God by doing a building project. God hears of this and says, thank you, David. I appreciate that. But what I'm going to do for you, I'm going to build you a house. Not meaning a building, meaning a dynasty. He promises to David that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne forever and ever, that God will give an everlasting kingdom, and David will be the ancestor through whom that comes. So overwhelmed is David that his response is, Lord, is this how you normally interact with people? Is this how you normally, who am I, Lord, that you would make this kind of promise to me? Who am I, Lord, that you should treat me this way? Already my life is far better than it ever deserved to be, and now you're making me a promise about an eternal kingdom? Is this how you treat humans? Your kindness is overwhelming. But despite God's incredible kindness to David, at one point after that, David is out in his palace looking out over the city that he rules over. 
and he sees a woman who's married to someone else. And he decides that he wants to sleep with that woman. And so in a horrifying abuse of power, the king summons the woman to come to his bedchamber. King David sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. David, in his attempt to cover up his sin, tries to pass off the pregnancy as being that of her husband. When he fails to do that, David does the most horrifying thing possible. He takes her husband, who by the way, is one of his most loyal and most successful soldiers. David had 30 mighty men. These were the people who were at the top of his military. These are the people who gave their lives for him, who sacrificed everything for him. This man was one of those. David takes the man, his name is Uriah, and he has him killed. He takes Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, brings her into the palace, marries her and adds her to the wives he already has. This was God's response when David does that. 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. This is the story that Paul is referencing in Romans chapter 3 by quoting Psalm 51. And the question or the point he's trying to make is, what was God's response to David's unfaithfulness? How did God respond when David did this horrific thing? When after all the good God had done for David, David turned around and chose sin. This greatest king in Israel's history, this man after God's own heart, what was God's response when David did this horrendous thing? Paul says, God responded with faithfulness. Faithfulness. How? Three ways, and I want you to take a pen and write these down if you're taking notes. How was God faithful to David in the face of unbelievable unfaithfulness? Number one, God dealt with David's sin. Psalm 51 is David confessing his sin. He's saying, your hand has been heavy upon me. God rebuked David for what he did. Part of God's faithfulness was addressing the sin that David committed. He didn't just sweep it under the rug. He didn't just ignore it. He didn't just say, well, David, hey, look, nobody's perfect. You, you're mostly a good king. We'll just let this one pass. No, that would have been unfaithful. 
God responded to David's sin by dealing with the sin. David suffered immensely for that choice. David experienced the discipline of God. And God was faithful to David because he didn't abandon him. He said to David, we've got to deal with this. It would have been easier to just ignore him and wipe the sin away. But God was unable to do that because he must be faithful. And so the first thing he did is he dealt with David's sin. But the second thing that God did is he overwhelmed David with his grace and kindness. That's what Psalm 51 is about. It leads to Psalm 32 in which David says, blessed is the one who God forgives their sins. He can't understand the grace of God because in that situation, this woman Bathsheba that he married, that he had no business marrying, God chooses to give David and Bathsheba a son named Solomon. And he chooses to bless that child. That child who should never have been born, who should never have been blessed. God poured out his grace and his kindness to David and to David's son. God was faithful. He did not abandon it. He dealt with his sin, but then he overwhelmed David with goodness and with grace and with kindness, giving to David far beyond anything he ever deserved. And then third, God was faithful to David because he fulfilled the promise that he made to David to give him a descendant who would sit on the throne forever. David's descendant, the man Jesus Christ. This is why the book of Romans opens with the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son Jesus, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Why did God choose to have Jesus come through this man who was a murderer and an adulterer and who was unfaithful? Because God is faithful. David's unfaithfulness did not nullify God's faithfulness. God could have very easily have said, hey, look, if you're going to act this way, deal's off. All that good stuff I promised you, you get none of it. But that is not how God responded. He responded to David's sin with faithfulness. Even though David didn't live up to his half of things, God said, I will do what I promised because I'm faithful. Now listen. It's not just King David that God responds to this way. Listen to what 2 Timothy 2.13 says. If we are what? Faithless, he remains what? Faithful, for he cannot disown himself. When you and I are faithless, God always, always, always responds by being faithful. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 3, that God responds to human faithlessness with faithfulness, dealing with sin, but then overwhelming us with grace and kindness.
and fulfilling every promise that he's made to us. Now this is all a lead-in for Paul to something we're going to spend more time talking about next week. But it's the story of Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, was born as a descendant of David, fully human, to come and die on a cross for our sins so that he might be raised from the dead so that God might show grace to all of us who are sinners who accept Jesus as our Lord. And this is the ultimate example of how God faces human faithlessness with faithfulness. We are told that while we were still sinners, while God looked down on this world and saw despair and discouragement and doubt and disobedience everywhere, while God saw a group of people, all of humanity whose hearts had gone in the wrong direction, who had left the Lord, when God looked out and saw all of this unfaithfulness, he responded while we were still in the midst of sin by sending his son to die for us. He met our faithlessness with his faithfulness, which accomplished three things. Jesus' death dealt with our sin. The punishment for sin is death. God can't just simply sweep sin under the carpet. That would be unfaithful. Instead, God chose to deal with our sin, but he did it with grace and kindness and allowed Jesus to bear the penalty for our sin so that we might have from God eternal riches and blessings, eternal life. He's overwhelmed us with his grace and his kindness. And that through Jesus, every promise that God has made to humanity is fulfilled. That God has promised to bless us. And when we chose to disobey him, when we chose to defy him, when we chose to rebel and reject him, when we chose even the best of us to engage in immorality and impurity, to engage in anger and hatred and bitterness and lying and deception, when we chose those things, God has chosen to keep his promise and to bless us. He's responded to our sin by keeping his word. Every one of us is a liar, but God is true. So what's the application of this for us today? There are two. One, if you're here and you've not yet accepted Jesus as your Savior, what are you waiting for? Listen. David, this adulterer, this murderer, This unfaithful man is today in heaven experiencing eternal life. He has inherited an eternal kingdom. His sins have been forgiven and washed away. He is clean for all of eternity. God responded to that with faithfulness. That's how he's responding to you. And the point is, is look, as good a person as you may think you are, 
You are still shot through with sin. There are attitudes and actions. You have not given to God what he deserves, the worship, the glory, the honor, the money, the time, the energy, the praise, the obedience, the trust. But God has responded to your unfaithfulness with Jesus. And through Jesus, he is offering to deal with your sin to give you grace and mercy beyond anything you could ever imagine and to fulfill every promise to bless you. That same eternal life, that same eternal kingdom that David, the adulterer and the murderer is experiencing is offered to you by faith. Second application. If you're already a believer in Jesus, you and I need to be reminded that God's response to our sins since we came to faith in Jesus is always, always, always the same. He responds with faithfulness. He responds. We do not nullify his promises through our sin. He's promised that he's going to complete the work that he's begun in us. He's promised that he's going to make us like Jesus. He promised that he's going to watch over our children. He's promised that he's going to bless us. He's promised that he's going to take care of us. Our sin does not nullify his faithfulness. Yes, God has to deal with the sin. Yes, there is discipline. But God always responds to our sin with grace and with fulfilling the promises that he's made. Listen, I'm a human just like you. I got all these sins just like you do. It's so easy to fall into the mindset to think God thinks of me the way I think of others, that if only if everybody does everything just the right way, that if I somehow raise my kids exactly right, if I do my marriage exactly right, if I interact in business exactly right, then I might have a chance for things to work out. Please hear what God is saying. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. He always, always, always responds to sin the exact same way. With faithfulness. That's why we praise him. That's why Psalm 115 says, not to us, Lord, but to you belongs the glory. Because your love and your faithfulness, can you imagine Every time, every one of our sins, every sin in all of human history, God has always responded the exact same way, by being faithful. Now we saw what that looked like in the life of King David. God's provided a testimony of what it looks like in the life of someone in our congregation. So I'm going to invite my friend John Postma uh, to come up and share his story, which is really a story of God and his faithfulness. Thanks, John. Good morning. Jim's message on Mother's Day spoke to me, and I was that hypocrite that he talked about. But I would like to share with you how God has been changing that. I should begin my story with a short history of my life. This in no way is meant to place blame or to invite pity, but rather to allow you to identify with some of the challenges I have faced. 
and examine my wrong responses to them. I had a pain-filled childhood. During my childhood years, I experienced severe emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. I was raised by an angry, physically abusive, religious, fanatic father. My mother was emotionally abusive, manipulative, and untrustworthy. My parents were very poor, so I worked through high school and college to pay my tuition and cost of living. Even into my adulthood, my parents were angry, controlling, and manipulative to the point of damaging my own marriage. In retrospect, I realized that my parents dealt with their own dysfunctional childhood in surviving in surviving the Holocaust by inflicting abuse in our home. In 1978, I graduated from Calvin College with poor grades and could not find a job. My option at the time was to pursue a career in real estate. I was hired. Sales were slim in my first two years, and I remember my mother telling me to get a real job. My first real estate car was a 72 Audi with rusted floorboards that I would park around the corner so that clients wouldn't see the smoke. I had one sport coat that went with many colors so I could change my tie and the pants to match. In August of 79, I married my wife, Lorene. As my career advanced, we started a family. Over time, my sales increased each year. But during all that time, my life was not really in sync with God. Most of the time, I was not emotionally connected or even present. This detachment continued for many years. Several years ago, I started to ask myself, have I sacrificed my family on the altar of career? Have I sacrificed my relationship with God on the altar of career? Have I sacrificed my relationship with my wife on the altar of success? The answer is yes. And the journey up the ladder of success has brought much material wealth. I was addicted to work, closing the deal, success, and accumulating wealth. In 1995, I joined Promise Keepers. I attended conferences, read literature, started a small group, and I thought I was on my way to real spiritual living and intimacy with God. My spiritual high was short-lived. I believed I could serve God and money. Fast forward to year 2008. In a time period of approximately 12 months, my life fell apart. In September, the market crashed. Our office phones were dead, and I actually thought about looking for a different career. I watched friends and clients lose everything. Things got worse. I got a letter from the IRS and went through a year and a half audit. I was involved in a two-year lawsuit that went to the Michigan Court of Appeals. 
I had a real estate partner who filed bankruptcy. The banks were calling our notes in other partnerships. My wife and I were involved in a construction project on our Lake Michigan home. My mother broke her hip. One of my daughters had two unexpected surgeries. My oldest daughter moved to Alabama. My twin sister broke the family secret and shared the sexual abuse that had occurred at the hands of my oldest brother over many years. I was serving on three boards, but I still thought I could manage on my own. As my world was crashing in, I remember one night my wife asked me, what is one of your greatest fears? I said, losing my net worth. She responded, what you fear most can become your God. When I read the book of James, one verse that resonates with me is, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. My relationship with God got lost in the confusion of a divided soul. As I began to face the truth about myself, I realized that I needed to make some hard decisions. I thrived on affirmation and was hungry for pats on the back. When I chose to live the double life, it became easy to doubt if God heard me at all. I had faith, yet I shut the door and did not allow God to control my life. When we resist the devil at every turn and choose to draw close to God, he will draw close to us. When I opened up my hidden heart and began to make choices in favor of God's will, I soon grew confident that God desired to help me. On a certain Sunday in the church bulletin, it was stated that I had resigned from our church board for personal reasons. That same Sunday, there was an announcement in the Grand Rapids Press that stated I was the top REMAX agent in the state of Michigan for the past year. There are times God allows irony in our lives to teach us a lesson and to give us perspective. I believe that God can allow great success in spite of our sins in order to teach us and to display His power and restoration when things fall apart. I knew I had to make changes. I stepped down from responsibilities that I had taken on. I quit drinking alcohol. In the past, I would stop by the local 7-Eleven and pick up a six-pack on my way home. On November 7th of 2011, I came to the conclusion that I was powerless over alcohol. I had to deal with the temptation of pornography by surrounding myself with safeguards, by eliminating my access to such material. My addictive behaviors were probably a way to seek pleasure or to overcome the pain in my life. That way seemed right at first, but then it became clear to me that I was on the wrong track. I was just unable to turn around on my own. 
The best help is to pray and to open God's Word. I have been diagnosed with ADHD, anxiety disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and bipolar disorder. Psychologists have told me that these behavioral disorders may have contributed to my success as a realtor. This may be true, but I also believe that the symptoms of these disorders can be intensified and related to hidden sin, guilt, and are not having a right relationship with God. I came to understand that I have an addictive personality. I experience what can happen if you don't make time for the things of God. Busyness can be the devil's playground. I was working overtime. I was running off to another church meeting or serving on a nonprofit board. The more affirmations I received, the faster I ran for approval. I was addicted to work and accomplishments. I was hardworking and I involved myself in activities to feel worthwhile. I kept myself too busy to be in touch with my feelings. I became a slave to work. So I worked extra to take care of others and, the, and to earn the right to be loved. In fact, my work was at the heart of my self-esteem. I now seek affirmation from God and not from others. I now make it a priority to have consistent devotions, be in intentional community with others, and have enjoyed studying the book of Revelation with Bible Study Fellowship this year. The Lord in His kind way is helping me with slowing down and enjoying the moment. In February 2015, I was diagnosed with incurable leukemia. I was recently part of an early intervention trial treatment that started at the end of April. But last Sunday, I woke up with a severe reaction, which has forced me to stop taking this wonder drug. It was a reminder yet again that my life is not in my hands, but in God's. As I reflect on my life, God has been so faithful to me amidst all of my selfishness, arrogance, pride, and sin. But because of God's mercy and grace, he is making all things new. In fact, on my birthday recently, I received some overwhelmingly kind and encouraging words from my children. And recently, my oldest daughter moved back from Alabama to be my full-time assistant. God has reminded me that I am never too old or too sick to be changed into who he desires me to be. God has given me a wife who has been so faithful to him in weathering the storms of life that I have caused. God has provided protection for my wife and children when I was at my most hypocritical point. God has rescued me from a path of destruction. 
God has been faithful in my leukemia, and I can say I am thankful for the leukemia. God has surrounded me with medical providers who are believers and encourage us to rely on God. He is such a good, good Father. Through your sacrificial, extravagant gift, he has provided the prayer garden, which has become a special place for me. I am so thankful for his faithfulness when I am faithless. I'd like us to pray for John. So if you would, would you stand while I pray over him? God, this is your story. You're a God who responds to our faithlessness with faithfulness. God, I thank you for John. Lord, you know that I've personally been incredibly blessed, and I know many in this room have as well. God, thank you for his courage to share the story. God, I know that this was very difficult for him, but God, I know that you're proud of him. God, I thank you for the man that you're making him. Lord, I thank you that you are making all things new. Lord, I thank you for his family, for the reconciliation and restoration and support, uh, Lord God. And now, Lord, I pray over my dear brother. Lord, I pray your spirit of healing uh, Lord God, <clears throat> he has something that humans do not know how to cure. But I'm asking you, Lord, in front of all of these people, Lord God, uh, that in your mercy and your grace, uh, Lord God, you would overwhelm him with kindness. Uh, Lord God, that you would grant him healing. Uh, Lord God, that you would grant him many more years of being able to share your story with others. God, I pray that you would show your faithfulness to him, his family, and to the church in this. And Lord, I'm asking you to do this. It's possible now through Jesus. Because God, you are faithful, you can respond to John and all that he's going through with kindness and grace and love and mercy. And God, I'm asking you to fulfill your promises. You've promised, Lord God, that you would heal our diseases, that you would bless us, that you would walk with us through the darkness, that the waves would not overcome us, that when we walk through the fire, it will not burn us. And so, Lord, I claim that for John. And God, I claim that for all who are here. God, thank you for being faithful. It's because of you we've gathered to give your name glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. <laughs>